0: reading uh, chapter 1, and then I'm going to skip over to chapter 3. But they're not very long, so starting at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Goma conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Haziah, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Rahama, had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him lo I, which means, Not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Skipping over to chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jenny. I'd say uh, the job description of a prophet can sometimes be a little demanding. <laughs> Take a a, a a prostitute for a wife and uh, then, presumably after she's enslaved, buy her back. And Anyway, uh, today uh, we're doing a one-off topical sermon looking at the 12 minor prophets. Uh, it's a big chunk, so without further ado, let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we thank uh, thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the scriptures, uh, in all the scriptures. Uh, Father, please uh, give us uh, a wisdom and understanding as we come uh, to consider, I, I guess, uh, topically a, a big part of your word uh, this morning. Uh, may you use what I've prepared to strengthen us in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, my aim in today's one-off topical talk is to give you confidence in and enthusiasm for reading the 12 minor prophets one of the big reasons i want to do that is because i suspect that it's the part of the bible that christians have the least amount of familiarity with and the reason i think that's the case is because the time period in which these 12 final books of the old testament were composed is the part of the Bible timeline that we're usually least familiar with. I reckon most of us know the Bible timeline starts with God creating the world, and then we get the fall as humanity rebels against God's loving rule. Then after the flood of Noah, we get God's huge promise to Abraham, land, offspring, blessing. And then we have Abraham's descendants make their way to Egypt, where eventually they end up in slavery after which we get the Exodus uh, with all the, you know, the plagues and the Red Sea, and then that's followed by the wilderness journey in which God's people are given his law at Mount Sinai. Then, of course, we have the entry into the promised land, the land that pro- uh, God promised to Abraham that gets divided up by the 12 tribes. After this, we get uh, the kingship of David and Solomon, and uh, I'm delighted to say we're going to be hearing about this uh, in uh, starting of next week. And beyond Solomon, there's a big split. Sometimes we call it the, the schism, uh, the division of the kingdom of Israel, where you've got the 10 northern tribes with their hopeless kings and the two southern tribes with their mostly hopeless kings. And I reckon it's somewhere around here that I find, at least for many of us, we get a little bit hazy on what happens around, say, this part of the Bible timeline and the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. And of course, that's the point where the 12 minor prophets fit in, which explains something of why we're often not all too familiar with their message. But there's immense benefit in increasing our familiarity with this part of God's Holy Scriptures. A, Jewish, a famous Jewish rabbi by the name of Ben Sirah, actually his name's a lot longer than that, but we shorten his name to Ben Sirah, who lived around 200 years before Jesus, viewed the writings of the minor prophets as greatly comforting. He once said, and I quote, may the bones of the 12 prophets send forth new life from where they lie, for they comforted the people of Jacob and delivered them with confident It's not surprising that that's what Ben Sirah saw in the Minor Prophets because, as you and I know from the New Testament, God ensured that these writings were given ultimately to benefit those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. The Minor Prophets are Christian scripture, they make us wise for salvation in Jesus, and they are designed to strengthen us in the faith. And I find that a significant first step which will help us greatly with our confidence for reading and understanding the minor prophets, is to realise that we are really, in the end, dealing with one book. We use the term minor prophets to refer to the relative word count and thereby distinguish them from the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, whose writings are much longer. But a far more biblical designation would be simply the book of the 12. It is one literary unit, one book, that happens to be composed of 12 sections, each contributed by a different prophet. I'll show you briefly how that's the case. Uh, The first prophet, Hosea, uh, speaks about the defilement of God's promised land. I hope you're listening as Jenny read, Hosea 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, obviously, the state of the land is a reflection of the, the state of the people who occupy it. Uh, God's people are supposed to be secure as they dwell in God's land. It's supposed to be recognised as God's land and therefore really good because God's really good. But on account of ongoing sinfulness, their place is now defiled. Hence God's name is brought into disrepute. Well, then in the final chapter of the 12th prophet, Malachi, the opposite end of the book, God says he'll take measures to ensure that Israel are purified lest he will come and strike that land with total destruction. Malachi 4 verse 5, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Throughout the book of the 12, we see Israel and Judah addressed as inhabitants of God's promised land. For example, Joel, the second prophet, says in his opening, Hear this, you elders, listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? And by the way, in the context, he's actually referring to a terrible locust plague that did the kind of damage you'd expect from an invading army. Hence, it was probably a warning from God. Again, Zephaniah, the ninth prophet, says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And just as in our opening chapters from Hosea, we learn that God would intervene to reestablish the holiness of his promised land, expressed figuratively through the buying back of the now enslaved prostitute to be his wife once again, So we learn in Zechariah, the 11th prophet, that this transaction will remove the sin from the land. Zechariah 3, 8, I am going to bring my servant the branch, skipping forward, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I hope you can see already that there's a big story that kind of runs across the book of the 12 for which the opening chapters of Hosea give us the miniature version, the overture, if you like. God's people have defiled his land through idolatry, kind of like a promiscuous wife. So they'll become estranged from him, kind of like a promiscuous wife finding herself in prostitution slavery. Yet he will bear the cost of bringing them back to something permanent as Hosea would pay to redeem his wife so she'd become his exclusively this time. Those who approve of this will be invited to the wedding. Those who don't will be left outside. There's a great day of judgment being expected in the Minor Prophets. One Minor Prophets are really the one book of the Twelve and that the opening of the book gives you its major themes, it becomes a lot less scary to read and begin to understand this part of God's Word. But what are the major themes of the book of the Twelve? We've seen enough to know that the book presents a unified message, God's people dwelling securely in God's place after their idolatry is removed and before the final judgment. But having something a bit tighter and more defined than that will surely increase our confidence in reading the book of the Twelve. To get there, we need to brush up on our Bible timeline, especially the bit many of us are probably a bit rusty on. After the great reigns of King David and King Solomon, whereby the promises to Abraham looked like they were fulfilled because blessing was coming to the earth, the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon. But after that, Israel divided into two kingdoms, the north, which often got called Israel with its ten tribes, and the south, which was often called Judah with its two tribes. The kings ruling in the north rule in such a way that violates God's covenant especially when it comes to idolatry the worship of false gods in the belief that such gods would bring blessing and prosperity our current culture in 21st century Australia basically does the same thing we don't call it idolatry and we don't have statues of gods maybe but we gladly enslave ourselves to the false promise of satisfaction with material wealth, with status, with prosperity, with a prettier house. Greed is idolatry and it's rampant in our culture and it means we worship things other than God. We are actually very similar to the northern tribes of Israel. The king's ruling in the south, with a few exceptions, violated God's covenant in the same way as the north. So with repeated warnings from the prophets, God tells the north that they are going to be invaded and conquered. Eventually, this happens at the hands of one of the superpowers of the ancient world, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians conquered, captured, and dispersed the majority of the Israelites roughly around 721 BC. Sometimes it's called the, the, the Great Dispersion. Sometime later, with repeated warnings from the prophets, God tells the south, Judah, that they're going to be taken to exile in Babylon for 70 years, and that happened roughly around 587 BC. After these events, a remnant from Judah would return to re-establish the promised land which involves rebuilding the city of Jerusalem with its temple, the house of God. And we read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but also in the book of the 12, especially the 10th prophet, Haggai. In fact, the book of the 12 provides us with God's perspective on this whole period of Israel's history from before, during, and after the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests of God's people. Interestingly, oh, there it is, yeah, that's that's roughly the period in which we're dealing with the book of the twelve. Interestingly, there would be some from the north who remained in or close to the promised land after the Assyrian conquest. For them, they held that the centre for true worship was not Jerusalem in the south, but Samaria in the north, Hence, they would eventually become known as the Samaritans. And even for them, God's process of having the temple destroyed and Judah taken into exile and then having people return and the temple rebuilt would somehow be a blessing for the faithful from the north, including the Samaritans and beyond. This increases our appreciation for the fact that Jesus once deliberately sought out an adulterous Samaritan woman to whom he revealed himself first as a prophet and then turned her heart back to the Lord so that she became a legitimate worshipper in spirit and truth. In that same gospel, Jesus would identify himself as the temple that would be destroyed and his people scattered. Yet in three days have it rebuilt, after which he'd gather all people to himself, something the Samaritan woman had begun doing already. Can you see, just even at a small glance, how reading and understanding the Twelve can give you a much greater insight into what's going on into the gospel of Jesus. But lest I get ahead of myself, which I want to do, with my stated aim of increasing our confidence in and enthusiasm for reading the book of the 12, the major themes are, firstly, turning back to God. If you want to understand what the Bible means by repentance toward God, you ought to look at what is written in the book of the 12. A great theologian I've been reading this week writes, the theme of reciprocal return emerges as an inherent reading strategy that clarifies the rhetorical function of the Hosea prologue as a guide for reading all 12 books of the Minor Prophets together. I'm going to put that in plain English. Turning back to God is a major theme of the book of the 12, and we find in particular that sinners turning back to God happens in conjunction with God turning back to sinners. Such repentance is possible because the God we can return to resolves the problem of sin. In the law, we learn about the seriousness of sin and the process of forgiveness through the sacrificial system in the law, the Torah. But in the book of the 12, we get a lot more concentration on the moral character of sin. The fact that outward religiosity doesn't equate to a cleansed heart and conscience. Coming back out of exile isn't returning to God. Returning to God is actually returning to God with your heart. And for this, God alone needs to do the cleansing. And he will do that cleansing before the final judgment, third major theme, of which there are many warnings. Friends, it's always tempting to downplay the judgment of God, especially because most of us have not suffered the terrible atrocities that cause victims to rightly rejoice at God's holy vengeance. But judgment is easily one of the biggest and most important themes of the prophets, including the book of the Twelve. You might think as you read through that the pronouncements of judgment are really repetitive. But when you remember that the book actually covers a long period of time, around four centuries, you realise it's actually quite proportionate. We also learn that these things describe the way God relates to all peoples and nations not just Israel, or not just Israel and Judah. How God deals with Israel and Judah is indicative of how he deals with all people from all nations and all time. In a minute, we're going to see how the book of the 12 incorporates God's dealings with the nations. Finally, much of the expectations raised in the book of the 12 seem to be met in rather unsatisfying ways. But this is because they anticipate the Messiah, in whom they will ultimately be fulfilled. In summary, the Book of the Twelve is one literary unit covering the period of the downfall and re-establishment of both Israel and Judah in God's holy land. Its major themes are turning back to God who resolves the problem of sin before the final judgment. It applies to all people and finds its ultimate fulfilment in Christ. Now, in keeping with my method of saving the best till last, we're now going to briefly look at some case studies of how these major themes are addressed in the book of the 12. Firstly, with turning back to God, we learn from the book of the 12 that repentance is a prerequisite for a right relationship with God. Salvation does not come without repentance. But the book of the 12 teaches us to see that also in the positive Repentance is truly effective. For those who return to God, he will return to them. So Zechariah 1:3, the, therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says: return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Again, Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. Our God is a God who delights in repentance. He says that even if people are at the farthest horizon, should they return to him, he will gather them and bring them to the place he has chosen chosen as a dwelling for his name. Of course, that place is in Jesus Christ, no matter where you might be physically. And it stands to this day that no matter how far gone someone might be from God, His offer is that if you return to him, he will return to you. Perhaps you're someone watching now, you've tuned in, and you feel that you're one of those people who is beyond redemption, that Christianity is for those reasonably good people, but not for you because you're too damaged, you're too immoral. Well, God assures you that if you return to him, he will most certainly return to you. The blood of Jesus has made that a certainty. And God will not accept your repentance begrudgingly. He longs to return to those who return to him. Check this out from the ninth prophet Zephaniah. God says of those who return to him, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God rejoices over repentant sinners with singing. If you've not yet turned to God by putting your trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, why not give God himself a reason to sing this morning? Concerning the resolving of sin, we learn that it comes at personal cost to God and to God alone. Just as Hosea was instructed to buy back his defiled wife, presumably with all the extreme emotional absorbing of pain that that would have involved, so God would be the active party when it came to having sin resolved. Hosea 14, now verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned aside, turned away, From them. Again, from Zechariah chapter 12, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And of course, the New Testament quotes this particular prophecy in relation to Jesus' crucifixion, in which God's anger against our sin is turned aside, and through which rebellious sinners like me and like you can return to God. Regarding the final judgment, the prophets in the book of the 12 speak of the day of the Lord in a way that sounds very final, but for which it seems there are smaller judgments that serve as warnings about that coming day. For example, uh, the second prophet, Joel, opens up by uh, likening what happened with a locust plague to what will happen on the great day of the Lord When his holy anger will be poured out. Initially, it happened when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in the south and and took Judah into exile. In fact, in Zechariah, we read that a day of the Lord is coming, uh, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. Uh, This makes it sound very much like the day of the Lord, as as it was in Joel, uh, happened when the Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem then carried off the southern tribes into exile. But unlike Joel, Zechariah was writing well after that event. Judah had already been exiled and they'd returned from Babylon by the time of Zechariah. So you then come to understand that the judgment God allowed from Babylon actually had the purpose of pointing to a greater, final day of the Lord that would somehow include the destruction of God's own place. The dreadful day when Babylon conquered Jerusalem pointed to the day of the Lord when Jesus, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, the true place of God, was destroyed on the cross. That great day will be consummated when Jesus returns, which will be wonderful for those who have turned back to God in the meantime and unspeakably dreadful for those who have not. Uh, This has a lot of of bearing and implication for us in the here and now, friends. We would be wrong to insist that the current COVID pandemic and lockdown is a judgement from God any more than any other unfortunate event in our fallen world. But we would also be wrong to deny that the current COVID pandemic and lockdown is a judgment from God as well. It's unfashionable, sadly, even amongst many evangelicals, to speak of the possibility of God's temporal judgment being something of a wake-up call for the soon-to-come eternal judgment. But the Book of the Twelve makes it clear that God does use worldly catastrophes, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, as a means of warning people of the coming day of the Lord. I think reading the book of the 12 reminds us that it's legitimate to raise the question with our non-Christian friends and family of the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility that God is giving a partial judgment as a motivator toward repentance. From the 10th prophet, Haggai, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Second last, the book of the 12 makes it clear that God's dealings with Israel and Judah are to inform all people across all time and place of how God deals with us. Before the dreadful day of the Lord, the second prophet, Joel, calls out for Judah's repentance, saying, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Return to Yahweh your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. And if you remember from Jonah chapter 3, we saw a couple of weeks ago, after Jonah warned of the coming judgment, the pagan king of Nineveh did exactly this. He declared a nationwide fast and then he said, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And of course, we know that God did relent. He spared the Ninevites in accordance with his character, in just the same manner as he would save the Israelites. Can you see how God deals with the nations in the same way that he would deal with Israel? Much to Jonah's dismay, God treated the pagans just as he treats his own people. And so it is today. Finally, God did purchase back his wayward wife, so to speak the remnant from within Judah and from within Israel. But when they rebuilt that temple, the second temple, it wasn't even as glorious as the first one. Even after the return and the rebuild, the problem of idolatry and immorality persisted, as you can read about in in the 12th prophet Malachi. Israel remained a, a vassal kingdom, under the superpowers of Assyria, then Babylon, and then Persia. But the apparent lacklustre of what happened historically was designed to enable people to see that ultimately all the promises of God find their yes in the Messiah, Jesus. God hinted at this when he said through the sixth prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come uh, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from on old, from ancient times, i.e. someone perhaps eternal. And of course, we already expected that the true return of wayward sinners to God involved a king in the line of David because Hosea gave us that in the big overture <laughs> in his introduction to the book, The The book of the Twelve is one book of Christian scripture set in the time before, during and after the Assyrian dispersion of the northern tribes and the Babylonian exile of the southern tribes. It shows how God's righteous judgment is reserved as much for the Jew as it is for the Gentile and how his grace and compassion is extended to all humanity in the same way. The major themes are turning back to God, who resolves the problem of sin before the final judgment, of which he gives many warnings. It concerns God's dealings with all people and points to the ultimate fulfilment of God's plans in the person and work of Jesus. My only additional point of application is this. Why not make it a lockdown project to read the Book of the Twelve? If you want a good commentary, hit me up, get in touch with me, and. I'll sort you out. Let me uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, especially in the book of the 12. We pray that uh, you would enthuse us and inspire confidence in us to read it and to, to understand it. Thank you that you uh, give us a whole picture of it in the first few chapters of Hosea. And through the reading of it, may we find the blessing uh, that comes from returning to you by putting our trust in Jesus and having done so, to continue to live in faithfulness to you through him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.